2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17, through the end of the chapter. Here we remind ourselves of power, the work of Christ, and what it is that he particularly does for us in representing us. So we'll consider these verses together as we prepare to gather around the table. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. The old is gone, the new has come. The old may be gone, uh, but it's not completely forgotten. And what we were prior to forgiveness uh, should not always and forever leave our consciousness. We should remember what it is uh, from which Christ has saved us and remember his beautiful work for us. And that is what we aim to do tonight something that becomes very obvious as you look around the world, as you consider uh, the many things going on, as you perhaps watch the news. Something that's confirmed for us is what Jeremiah told the people of Judah many, many, many years ago. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand, who can understand it? Have you ever pondered that? Have you thought about that for any length of time? Who can understand the human heart? Who, who can understand how deceitful it is? Who can understand the depths of the sin that dwell therein? No one. No one can understand. Our world, our culture perhaps, for probably most cultures, don't like to dwell on these things. They don't like to, to take time to think about Uh, the depths of human depravity. Every once in a while, you'll find voices that, in somewhat of a shocking way, are are unafraid to speak truthfully to the matter. And this is uh, a paragraph that's been quoted many times. I've found it in in multiple multiple sources. But uh, this is what the Minnesota Crime Commission said way back in 1926. And it's, it's shocking because it's, it doesn't mince words regarding human depravity. And it, it's talking about them in regards to, to young children. It says this, babies even. It says this, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. 
He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, he has no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal. Now, it's shocking because children, of course, are beautiful. Children are wonderful. Children are perhaps uh, the greatest source of joy that we have uh, this side of heaven. But in them, even in young children, those whom we love and adore the most, there is an unbridled selfishness that knows nothing except their own wants and their own desires. And uh, babies begin to develop with the, with the care of a loving mother. They begin to see that uh, they, they ought to think beyond themselves and think about not only themselves because they, over time, over the years, begin to see how much their mother or perhaps uh, their parents or their loved ones around them, how much they have sacrificed for their well-being. But we ask ourselves, is is that kind of environmental develop, development of goodness, that sort of natural way of the world where people become a little bit more civilized, is that enough? Is that enough to overcome what Jeremiah says about the human heart, that it is deceitful, that it is wicked above all things, and that there is no one who can understand it? Well, We could come at that question two different ways. We could look at the world ourselves and say, what is it that we see out in the world uh, relative to what Jeremiah says? We could ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus himself thought about the human race? What did he say and what did he think about human sinfulness? So first, let's consider the question as we look at the world ourselves. uh, Talking about children, maybe we can stay on the subject of children. After both my daughters were born, Shortly after they were born, a nurse comes into the hospital room and she places a, a, a bracelet on my wife and she pr- placed a, a bracelet on, on my daughter and, and explained to us that uh, this system was set up in the event that if mother and daughter are separated onto different floors, there will be an alarm that will go off. And that makes you pause and you think, why does, why does that exist? Why does this system exist why is, there, why is this a necessity in, in the hospital? Because it has happened enough times, whether by attempt or by success, that someone has gone onto the delivery floor of, of a hospital and stolen a child from its mother in the first hours of its life. Shocking. Come at it from a different angle. In this country alone, this country alone, we have now murdered 60 million 60 million babies before they are given a chance on this earth. 60 million. We could go into the first year's tenderness of life and think about what happens in this world with children, with abuse, with fear, danger, trafficking, sex trafficking. It's astounding. It's astounding. Look at what happens in this world with children. Can we not be convinced of the depths of human depravity? The human heart, who can know it? Who can know its depths? Who can know its sinfulness? 
Who can know what evils it is capable of? What does Jesus say in all of this? You ask people, what's the, what's the cultural appropriation of Jesus? What is it that you think Jesus said and what he taught? And people will say, well, Jesus taught about love and, and tolerance and acceptance. Accepting people as they are, not wanting to change them, but letting them be exactly who they are and affirming them. And such thoughts, of course, tell us that people mostly have really no clue about what it is that Jesus taught. You think of the rich young man that comes up to Jesus. He talks to him. He calls him good teacher. Jesus looks back at him. He says, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Jesus does not mean to say, of course, that I am not God. What he means to say is to this young man, you'd better know to whom you're talking before you assert that they are good. For there is one who is good, and that one is God. Jesus talked about the human heart in Mark 7, from within, out of the heart of a man, from his depths, from exactly who he is come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, Jesus said. Jesus answered in John 8, verse 34, he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Who has not committed sin? Jesus did not mince words. He had no confidence in the heart of man. He had no delusions about the goodness of man. In fact, he tells us in the passages we just read, and he, he tells us that it's why he came. It's why he came to finish the mission that his father sent him to accomplish. Perhaps you look to yourself and you say, well, Sure, I, I'm willing to affirm all of the wickedness in the world, the depravity of the human heart. And, uh, really, I'm just grateful that I don't rise to the levels of that wickedness. And certainly, there's cause to be thankful for that. There's certainly cause to rejoice. In, certainly, if you are in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, Certainly cause to rejoice that God has saved you from the depths of your own depravity. But two things we would consider there. And the first is simply that, to rejoice in grace. What is it that you attribute as to the cause for your not sinking to the levels of depravity that you're capable of? Your righteousness or God's grace? Let it be God's grace. Such were some of you, Paul says. All of the sins of this world, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And secondly, maybe you're of the mindset where you actually think that your self-righteousness is propping up something before God that God can look upon and see merit and see goodness and righteousness that really stands up before Him. And brothers and sisters, I would warn you that, that, that that's, not, that's not living according to the Bible. The heart is deceitful. Who can know it? Jesus confirms this assessment of Jeremiah, but exactly where we see this sad assessment of human nature, exactly where, you, where we see this one, this God-man, not mince words about the reality of the human heart, there we find the cure, the cure for the assessment. And that's what we're assembled tonight to remember. The cure is found in Jesus. Why did Jesus come 
to the earth. We remember at the end of the signs in the Gospel of John where Jesus has, is done making his case through signs. I've shown who I am. All these miraculous signs are, are done now. And the hour has come. And we know that his heart is distressed. And he says, shall I pray to be released from this hour? No, for it is exactly why I came to earth for this hour. To suffer and to die and to die for sins. The hour of his trial was going to the cross. And what is it that the cross does? Paul tells us God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Paul's ministry is based upon this call to preach the gospel, the message of reconciliation, that people would be set right with God. Now, in light of what we just considered and all the things that we've considered, and when Paul speaks about reconciliation, being set right, being reconciled with God, what is any rational mind going to say? Any rational mind is going to say, would that I could be reconciled to God. If only I could, but I am so far beyond possibility for redemption. I am way too sinful for ever God to reconcile me. But Paul implores them how. He says, on Christ's behalf. For it is on Christ's behalf. It is because of Christ and it is in Christ that God was reconciling the world to himself. We live in a peculiar time where there are all these New Age spiritualities that are kind of uh, older Eastern religions recast in sort of a, a Western way of thinking. And so often what they are doing is they, they're convincing the person that God is really themselves, that they are God. If you search long enough and if, you, if you're finding happiness, uh, trying to find your happiness long enough, you will eventually come to the place where you turn around and look inside yourself and you find it right there. Friends, consider the human heart. Consider what Jeremiah says. Will we ever find salvation by turning back in on ourselves? Or will we find salvation by turning outward and looking to somewhere else? Christ is the cure. Because in Christ, we have this wonderful truth. Very simple but ever glorious and never stops being glorious until the very last breath we take. We are sinful. In Christ, God does not count our sins against us. Who is a God like you? Micah chapter 7. Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his people. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our iniquities, nor repay us according to our sins. But, does God just zap sin out of thin air? Do they just disappear? Just shoots them off. They're gone forever. God has mercy. His mercy hangs in the air. There's no real reason for it. No. God's mercy is founded upon something. It does not hang in the air. God's mercy hung on a cross. Hung on a cross that we would be forgiven. When Abraham climbs up the mountain, can't even begin to fathom the, the, the pain that was going through his heart, even if he believed, and the book of Hebrews tells us that he did believe that, that God 
could even raise Isaac from the dead if need be. But we cannot imagine the pain that was going through Abraham. He was thinking about how he was going to be able to follow through with a hand of judgment coming down on his son, his only son, the son he loved. And God stopped him. The last moment God stopped him, he stayed his hand. But many, many, many years later, Jesus climbed a mountain and that hand of judgment did not stop. That hand of judgment had to come down upon someone because God could not stay the hand of his wrath forever. So it comes down on his son, Jesus Christ, his only son, the son whom he loved. And what we, we need to square with and ponder tonight is that Jesus was not like Isaac because Jesus was the God-man. He himself was the one who was of purer eyes than to look upon sin. He made the one who knew no sin, who, who, who had no sin, the one who is infinite and eternal, unchangeable in his holiness and in his goodness. He made him to be sin for us. See, we, we, we think of the law and, and the way that the law comes down to crush us in our sinfulness, convince us of our sinfulness. And, and, and we, need, we need the law, the crushing power of the law, to read it as a mirror, to remind ourselves that we, that we are idolaters, that we are disobedient, that we need the hand and the mercy of God. But when we consider Christ, the God-man, becomes sin for us, it, it, it even adds uh, much more weight to that consideration. He was the one. And he hung on that cross because of all the specific, because of all the general sins that we committed. Everything past, present, and future. He hung on that cross. And the Bible says that the Lord was pleased to send him to the cross. And think about the love that the Father had for the Son. And yet, he was pleased to do it so that he might welcome us into communion with him. Astounding. The mercy, the grace, the love of God in Christ. He knew no sin. And he became sin. We are reconciled to God through Christ. The assessment, the cure. And what can become of something so glorious, a message so glorious, but an awe and a wonder. So there's the assessment, the cure, and the wonder of the cure. The best thing that we've come up with so far in the church is to write songs and hymns that talk about how we really don't know how to express what God has done for us. We can't really sum it up in words. We, we, we don't really know how, how we are to thank him properly. And so we write hymns that say that. What language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend? For this your dying sorrow, your mercy without end. Lord, make me yours forever, loyal servant true. And let me never, ever outlive my love for you. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. And can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, wonder in the love of God Tonight, wonder in the work of Christ. Thank Him for all He did for you at Calvary, that God's hand of wrath came down on Him. Thank the Father 
praise the Son by the power of the Spirit. Our salvation is won at the cross, once and forever and always in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, then as we prepare to come to the table, prepare our hearts that we might, may do so rightly in a way which pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. If you would like to turn in our blue hymnal,